Hello and welcome to another episode of the When in Spain podcast with me, Paul Burge, your host for our regular foray into all things Spain, Spanish culture, travel, food, history. Have you ever wondered what is the oldest food stuff or food product that you have in your kitchen? And I mean by that, how far does the origin of that food product date back? Are there many that you could say date back 6,000 years? Maybe salt or bread? I don't know. I'm not uh, a food historian. But one thing is for sure is that wonderful condiment, liquid gold, olive oil dates back 6,000 years. And as we all know in Spain, olive oil is an absolute staple of Spanish cuisine. And that's what we're talking about in this episode of When in Spain, a real deep exploration of this beautiful golden elixir and in particular extra virgin olive oil. Joining me to talk about this wonderful foodstuff is Lucas Soler. I think Lucas has got extra virgin olive oil literally running through his veins. He is so passionate about great quality olive oil. His passion is palpable. Now, Lucas actually has spent most of his life living in the United States, but he was born in Barcelona and he's actually Spanish. So great is his passion for the best quality Spanish extra virgin olive oil that he's started his own company called Olive Oil Grove, importing the creme de la creme, the best Spanish extra virgin olive oil that you can find to the United States. After he became a bit disillusioned with the quality of olive oil available in the U.S., so in this episode, Lucas is going to be guiding us through the world of Spain's liquid gold. Lucas is going to be talking about all of the different varieties of olive oil that are available. We're going to be looking at the health benefits. He's got some amazing facts and figures and statistics about olive oil and olives in Spain. We're going to be talking about what makes Spanish olive oil special in particular. We'll be talking about harvesting, the production process, and also how to use extra virgin olive oil in the kitchen when we're cooking and preparing foods as well. About halfway through the episode, we do a virtual transatlantic extra virgin olive oil tasting. Yes, little cata de aceite de oliva. Me here in Madrid, Lucas in the United States. Shall we uh, raise the glass? And uh... Now, this is pretty potent stuff, Paul, so don't do a shot like you would do a shot of whiskey or something. <laughs> let's no, slow I, it down. Just a little okay. a little tiny half sip. Let's okay, do let's do it. Mm. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. And we did a little taste test of the extra virgin olive oil that uh, Lucas has sourced from a very special olive grove in Jaén, down in Andalusia. And that is the olive oil that he is importing to the United States. So stay tuned for that about halfway through the episode. Lucas is also going to be sharing with us his recommendations, top tips really about how to choose the best quality olive oil. And towards the end of the episode, he's going to be talking a bit more about his business and uh, some of the challenges he's faced uh, importing Spanish extra virgin olive oil into the United States. And just before the interview with Lucas, I'll be running through some of the amazing history behind olive cultivation and olive oil production right here on the Spanish peninsula. 
So stay with us in the hour ahead for all of that. Just before that, I'd like to give a very special shout out and big thank you to brand new When in Spain patron. So a big gracias to Rebecca Paradiso de Sayu, who signed up very kindly to support the podcast by becoming a When in Spain patron. And she says, thank you for bringing the beauty of Spain to my little corner of the world. It truly means so much. Well, that's great, Rebecca. I'm really glad to hear that. And that is why I'm here. That's why I do this, to bring all of you guys, the listeners out there, wherever you are around the world, little slices of deep Spain and insights and a bit of armchair travel. If you can't be here and you can't get here at the moment, in some way, I hope that this podcast can help transport you to Spain virtually by the power of podcast. If there are any other listeners out there who feel the same and enjoy this podcast and would like to uh, support it by making a small donation, you too can do that at Patreon dot com forward slash when in Spain. Okay, so just before the interview with Lucas Soler, I'd like to run through a, a brief history of olive cultivation and olive oil production on the Spanish peninsula. Now, there are some truly ancient olive trees in Spain. It's believed that the oldest olive tree in Spain is more than 2,000 years old. The oldest Spanish olive tree is actually located close to the uh, Via Augusta, which is the ancient Roman road that connected Rome with Cadiz down in southern Spain. However, the highest concentration of what are called millenary olive trees, so olive trees which are at least 1,000 years old, the highest concentration of those ancient olive trees is actually up in the northeast of Spain in southern Catalonia and down towards Valencia and there you will find 4,900 olive trees that are believed to be over 1,000 years old. So how did olives and olive oil production get to Spain? Well the first olive oil cultivation is thought to have started either in Greece or Egypt around 1700 BC. The palace of Knossos on the island of Crete is part of that legacy and stone tablets found dating back to 2500 BC from the court of the King Minos of Crete make reference to the olive. And in fact, it was the Greek poet Homer who coined the term liquid gold, referring to olive oil. So it was later then that the Phoenicians at around 1000 BC brought olives to Spain via North Africa. And then it was really the expansion of the Roman Empire that really cemented the popularity of olive cultivation and olive oil production on the Iberian Peninsula. It was the Romans who really mastered the art of olive cultivation, allowing the Iberian Peninsula to become the biggest producer in the Roman Empire. Olive oil from Hispania, as the peninsula was known then, was highly regarded by the inhabitants of old Rome, as well as the rest of the Roman Empire, who considered it superior quality. Now, the oldest reliable reference 
to the cultivation of olives in Spain is said to be found in the book De Bello Hispanico, which describes the landscape of the territories during Julius Caesar's campaigns. The book recounts an anecdote about Julius Caesar's cavalry set in an olive grove close to Seville, therefore giving written evidence of olive tree plantations in Andalusia in the first century BC. Archaeological evidence found in excavations at Monte Testaccio, which is an artificial mound in Rome, and the mound is composed almost entirely of fragments of broken ancient Roman pottery. Well, those fragments uh, according to archaeologists, indicate that over a period of 260 years, Rome imported some 6,500,000,000 litres of olive oil, of which 85% was produced in Andalusia. And then, of course, when the Moors arrived on the peninsula and settled, they expanded upon the local knowledge and they brought with them their revolutionary irrigation techniques. They were masters of making the most of scarce water supplies and then gradually more and more olive mills were built and more groves were planted and interestingly and many of you may know that I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to etymology of Spanish words particularly when they derive from Arabic the uh, importance of the Arab influence of olive oil and olive production is evident by the fact that the Spanish word for oil aceite actually comes from the Arabic Azate and uh, the Spanish word for olive, aceituna, comes from the Arabic word aceitun. Amazing to think that this everyday food product has such a rich and ancient history behind it. Let's get into the good stuff now and speak to a man who really knows his Spanish olive oil, Lucas Soler. Lucas, a warm welcome to the Wedding Spain podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me as well. Now, Lucas, I'm in Madrid and you're actually in the US. Give us a, a bit about your story. So I'm going to surprise you, Paul. I'm from Barcelona. Oh. So the first question I have to okay. ask you is, are you a Real Madrid fan? I'm, I'm not any fan. Uh, as some of my listeners might know, I'm not. This is kind of uh, blasphemy in Spain. I'm not really a big football fan. There's nothing wrong with that. So I football runs in my veins, just like olive oil does, being from Barcelona. So I was born in Barcelona and moved to the U.S. when I was seven years old. My dad stayed in Spain, so I moved to the U.S. with my mother. And she eventually, with my two siblings, eventually went back to Spain. So while I stayed in the U.S. and went to high school, went to college, my siblings and my mother returned back to Spain and they went to Almería. You've been in the U.S. ever since. What part of the U.S. are you talking to us from at the moment? This is in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I've lived up and down the East Coast as far north as Vermont and as far south as Atlanta. Do you get the opportunity to uh, come back to Spain very often? Yes. You know, I've been going back to Spain just about every year ever since I left right, to visit my father and my, um, I have a huge extended family in Spain, in the north in Barcelona and now in the south in Almería. I go all the time and I was always looking for an opportunity to combine business with Spain. And I finally been able to do that with the olive oil. So we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later, uh, your olive oil business that you've set up, basically exporting the best quality Spanish olive oil that you can find that money can buy to markets in the United States. 
Tell us a bit about your family's olive grove down in Almeria. I always kind of have this image of these olive groves. They're sort of really magical places. They've got a kind of ancient feel to them. They do, Paul. And you know, all, all it takes is to see one of these millennial olive trees, right? They're over a thousand years old. That really impressed the heck out of anybody seeing these trees. My mother moved down from Barcelona maybe 25 years ago and decided to buy this olive grove. And we were all surprised that our mother was going to buy an olive grove. What what are we going to do with a few hundred olive trees? And she has this really awesome property. And like you're saying, being amongst an olive grove, olive tree grove, is just magical because these trees have such energy. And so I love going back to my mother's property and being within the grove and just admiring the majesty that these trees provide. Yeah, majesty is the word, I think. I imagine that your your mother and your, your family there actually managed to produce their own olive oil from the grove. They have been producing oil from their property for some time, but they don't export that oil. Uh, they It's really just for personal consumption. They do sell it locally, but it's not an official business, if you will. I imagine it's quite a, a kind of labor intensive job, actually, harvesting olives kind of almost by hand. It's very manual intensive, and it's not just the harvesting, but the maintenance throughout the year also quite labor intensive. Uh-huh. My older brother, David, I call him Grove Master Dave, and he loves when I call him that. <laughs> he manages the property there, and he's always sending me videos and pictures of him pruning the trees or harvesting the trees. And he, he's kind of the guy that sparked a tremendous interest in me and in getting much more involved because I would go visit him, and I'd see him working in the grove. I'm like, look at this guy. You know, working in our family <laughs> grove. How can I get a piece of that? I love it. The Grove Master. Fantastic. Grove Master. We'll talk a bit about the production in more detail later. But in terms of like a small scale production, like a family olive grove, in terms of actually making the oil, is that something that is sort of not done on site necessarily, but it's done in these communal mills, I suppose? Mill is the correct term, and you're exactly right. These smaller groves, like our family grove, which has 204 trees, it's quite small, they don't have – that's not enough oil to have your own mill. So what they do is these communities, these small farmers or producers, bring the oil to a community mill. And a lot of times they'll even blend the oil together. So uh, you don't necessarily bring your own olives and get your own oil, but it's kind of a mixture, a blend of oils Mm -hmm. from that community. And that's the most cost effective way for those families or those producers to to get their oil. One question I do have for you, Lucas, before we get into the nuts and bolts is when you moved to the U.S. as a young boy, did olive oil still form part of your daily diet? Because I imagine in the United States, it's not something that was such a staple of the diet in the U.S. compared to here in Spain. But I imagine that it was something that was important to you and you still consumed olive oil. We in Spain, the average person consumes about 20 times more oil than we do in the U.S. Wow. And so that's that's quite a bit. So when I came over at the age of seven, oil is just part of every Spaniard's diet, right? I mean, it's, it's in everywhere. And so when I came to the U.S., I remember going to the university and uh, going to the salad bar and having to bring my own olive oil to the cafeteria. Now, mind you, <laughs> it must have looked very weird for me to bring in a, a bottle of yellow or green stuff into the cafeteria, but I did because <laughs> I couldn't just – put those nasty dressings that they offer in the U.S., the ranch and the oh. Thousand Island. And so yeah. I'd bring my own and kind of I became known in the cafeteria as the guy that brought his own extra virgin olive oil. 
<laughs> so you used to be sitting in the canteen, uh, like dressing your own salad with uh, with olive oil. I love that that image. That's fantastic. Yeah, I don't know what people must have thought was this yellow liquid in the bottle that I brought in. Definitely healthier than ranch dressing. That's for sure. From my perspective, talking about olive oil from in the UK, I mean, I remember as a kid, really, uh, in supermarkets, it's, you, you just didn't see it. If you go back to the, the kind of late 80s and early 90s, you might find one, maybe two bottles on the supermarket shelves. It was just not something that was very popular. And I remember talking to my parents about it and they said, well, olive oil before the mid 1990s in the UK was something you bought in a pharmacy, in a chemist, in a drugstore that was used for you know rubbing on your skin or putting in your hair the idea of using olive oil to you know put in your food or on a salad was like super alien to people in the uk at that time and, and obviously now completely different olive oil is the go-to oil i think now in the uk but i guess one thing that surprised me when i moved to spain looking at the supermarkets here was just the, the range of olive oil that is on offer but also the quantities i'd never seen containers of olive oil of like five and ten liter containers why do people need to buy so much because again in the uk you know you only find a liter or two liter bottle maximum size there's actually some guidance that i can give in terms of the size of bottle one should purchase you know but but in essence paul you mentioned in one of your other podcasts that in spain you get a caña a beer and when you order a caña it's a small caña because the spaniards want to consume that before it gets hot and olive oil is very similar you want to buy the amount of olive oil that you're going to consume within two or three months if you buy this gigantic five liter bottle, it's going to last you a year and a half. It's going to spoil before you get to the end of that bottle. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make, isn't it? We should treat olive oil uh, as a kind of fresh and natural product that it is and not just sit on it for you know, a year because it's it's just going to deteriorate in quality, I guess, and, and flavor. You're right, Paul. In fact, few people know that olive oil is nothing more than olive juice. Right. It's the natural juice that comes from the olive. And people, a lot of people that I speak to don't even realize that. Olive oil in a bit more detail then. There are different grades of olive oil. The olive oil that you are heavily involved in sourcing and uh, exporting to the US is the extra virgin olive oil, really the kind of creme de la creme, the really good stuff. Um, But there are other grades as well. And what are the kind of differences? So there's three main grades, and these grades are primarily international. So whether you're in the UK or in Spain, Italy or the US, they mainly have three grades. The the top one that you just mentioned is EVOO, extra virgin olive oil, right? And that means that it's the most pristine, it's the least touched. There's no heat going into the process of making it. It's very natural, literally the most pure olive juice you can get. Then there's the second grade, which is virgin olive oil. And that in essence, uses the same process that we talked about before, but the quality isn't as good. It may have more defects, may not smell as nice, may not taste as nice. And the third one is what they call olive oil. And that in essence is chemically produced. They use chemical to cleanse that oil. And at the same time, it takes all the nutrients away. That chemical olive oil then is sometimes blended, let's say in a 90-10 portion with good extra virgin olive oil to give some of the scent and taste back. But it's, it's very different. So within extra virgin olive oil, though, what a lot of people don't know, it's an olive oil insider's kind of secret, is that there is good versions of EVOO and there's lesser quality EVOO. And I, I like to differentiate those by saying if it's early harvest, it's the best 
healthiest version of EVOO you can find. And early harvest means that the olives were harvested when they were green. So usually in any supermarket in the U.S. and in most places, the olive oil you can get, whether it's EVOO or not, it's when the olives were black. They were harvested when they were very mature, as plump and juicy as possible to provide the most yield. It makes cool. a lot of sense from a production perspective. Sure. But it loses some of the nutrients when it gets to that stage. And so early harvest means the olives were harvested when they were green. The yield is far less. They'll get only a third of the amount of extra virgin olive oil from that olive. But the antioxidants, the polyphenol antioxidants in that green olive is sky high compared to the black version. And so early harvest is the healthiest version of extra virgin olive oil you can find. And I guess if they're harvested later when they're black, those antioxidants inside the olive deteriorate uh, over, over that period of time. So if you're catching them young, they have the maximum amount that they will ever have. That's correct. And you'll notice in the pricing with any single producer, they'll have the pricing for the early harvest, which is a lot higher than the regular late harvest. And so they produce both types. But you'll notice that from a price perspective because it's healthier and it produces less, right? If they're producing less of that oil, they have to charge more for it. And just talking about the harvest, in Spain, when is harvest time for olives or is there any variation across Spain? There is some variation. It's usually in the October, November timeframe. Of course, if you go to Catalonia, which is more north, then you're going to do it a little bit uh, later. But if you do it in the southern part, like in Almería or in Jaén, uh, then it's going to be around uh, October, November. So it varies a little bit. It's always hard to judge exactly when it's going to happen. I could plan my trip to be there, but <laughs> it's going to always vary right, based on the temperature and other climatic aspects of it. And let's talk a bit about the health benefits. You mentioned antioxidants. Extra virgin olive oil is very healthy, though, though the educated consumer knows that there is, again, this great extra virgin olive oil that's healthier than other versions. And, and the consumer in the U.S., for example, has a really tough time when reading the labels to know what, what is what. But in essence, we clearly know that extra virgin olive oil is the healthiest version of all the grades we talked about earlier. And there's two main parts of the olive oil that make it healthy. One are the polyphenol antioxidants and vitamin E. And according to the National Institute of Health, olive oil has shown to have similar health effects as calorie restriction. It reduces inflammation and ameliorates heart disease. So that's really powerful. I did read in the International Journal of Molecular Science that polyphenols found in extra virgin olive oil have the effect of slowing the aging process in cells. It's amazing, Paul, but what I always <laughs> recommend is go to a trusted source like NIH.gov, you know, National Institute of Health. Yeah. Search extra virgin olive oil in there and you'll find a plethora of information and in uh -huh. all the studies they've done. Combat aging. I'm sure a lot of people will be uh, <laughs> happy to hear that something so delicious has a fantastic effect. You'll probably know this, but I think last year or the year before, Spain was predicted to overtake Japan as the longest lived or the highest life expectancy in the world. And I wonder if there's some correlation with uh, olive oil consumption and longevity. An essential ingredient to the Mediterranean cuisine is mm. extra virgin olive oil. And, and because of that, there's got to be a link between the long life and great life of the Med Mediterranean diet and extra virgin olive oil. In Northern Europe, we're more into our, well, less so now, but I guess we were more traditionally used dairy to cook with, I think like butter in the UK and France and heavier fats. 
the average consumption in the UK for olive oil is, is four cups. In the US, it's three cups per year. So in oh, the UK, wow. about the same as the US. Just talking about consumption then, a few stats about production in Spain and maybe compared to the rest of the world. Am I right in saying that Jaén is the key area of olive oil production in, in Spain? You're right. And I would even up the ante and say Jaén mm. is the world capital of olive oil. Jaén wow. alone, which is the size of a small state of Delaware or Rhode Island in the U.S., produces more olive oil per year than the combination of Italy, Greece and Turkey. It That's produces a incredible. quarter of the world's extra virgin olive oil. Just Cheyenne produces a quarter of the world's olive oil. That's, That's mind-blowing. I knew they had a lot of olive trees down there, but I didn't realize <laughs> to that extent. Wow. Yeah, and, and it's amazing. That stat is just huge, right? And that's why it's known as the world capital of olive oil. Haiyan has 66 million trees spread over 2,000 square miles. 66 million trees? I can't describe what that is, right, Paul? But I tell you, if you <laughs> go to Haiyan, yeah, it's just, I don't know what that means, 66 million trees. <laughs> but when you go to Haiyan and you go within the grove, you automatically realize what in the world 66 million trees feels like. And you mentioned we talk about majesty. It is a feeling of majesty. The energy, these trees, they say these trees are all connected through the roots underneath. And so when you walk through the grove, it's this tremendous energy that you get. And it's just beautiful. Talking of high-end then, we'll come back to a, f a few more details about olive oil and the production process and how we can use it. You recently, well, very recently made a trip actually to high-end on a little kind of, I guess, like a sort of recce a mission seeking out producers to source your extra virgin olive oil. Tell us about that trip. because It sounded like a, a real, how can I put it, an olive oil adventure. <laughs> That's a great way to say it. Yeah, so I, I did my research in the U.S. and I realized that we were missing a certain type of olive oil. Right? We talked about this before, the early harvest olive oil. It's really difficult to find in the U.S., especially if it's organic. So combine organic with early harvest, it's almost impossible to find. And I wanted to get that from Chayen. What a better place to find that than the world capital of olive oil, right? Absolutely. If I can't find it among 66 million trees, I'm never going to find it. <laughs> so I took a trip last October, October 2020, during the pandemic. And a lot of people ask me, how the heck did you even get over there? Like traveling wasn't allowed. You know, yeah. And, and my family here in the U.S. was kind of against it. You know, like, Lucas, are you really going to go to, of all places, Madrid and Jaén, where the pandemic was quite, quite vibrant? Absolutely. I was only allowed to go because I'm a Spanish national. Okay, so I was able to travel to Spain. But you're right. I did this trek really to find La Creme de la Creme, a quest for the best, if you will. And it was phenomenal. I was able to travel to Jaén. It was a bit eerie because I was the only one as there as a tourist, even though I'm Spanish and I have a lot of roots. I still find myself to be a bit of a tourist, certainly in new places. Yeah. And I was like the only person there visiting the groves and visiting the producers. So they were all very surprised, very welcoming as well. But usually when they might find 30 people come through the door, I was the only one. Here's Lucas walking through the door and you know, meeting <laughs> with them. So I felt very special because they gave me a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, so I visited groves. I visited their mills. Whenever I actually went to a producer, 
I would uh, ask about their their methods, their agricultural practices. We'd go right into the grove and they would, we would tour the grove and we would talk about their trees, the type of varieties that they're growing, their agricultural practices. There are a lot of things that I look at in a producer to determine whether there's someone I want to work with or not. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole spectrum of things that to me drive toward a high quality producer. And so toward the mills as well, every nook and cranny of the mill, my favorite part was probably toward the end when they would let me taste the olive oil. You know, and they would picture these huge, you know, thousands of gallons or thousands of liters of olive oil that are sitting there and they would turn the little spigot, you know, and give me a taste of their olive oil. And it was just so fresh. I've never tasted such fresh, like right from the silo. You know, it doesn't get any better than that for someone like me. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the trip was phenomenal. After about a week and a half of visiting all these groves, I went to Jaén primarily. I did also go to Almería. Um, and it wasn't um, easy to always get around. I remember, Paul, the last day I was there, <laughs> uh, October 31st, Spain went into a national lockdown because of the pandemic. And so no one was allowed to travel from city to city. You were in essence locked down in your municipality. And I had to travel to the airport that day. I was flying out of Madrid. It was a, wow. a five-hour drive to the airport. And so the, the hotel people the night before were tell, warning me. They're like, I don't think you're going to get to the airport because it's all locked down. But I, I had to go. So I got in my car and I drove and I came across three different checkpoints. And the first police checkpoint you know, I'm a very transparent and honest guy. They pull me over. I show my Spanish passport, my American passport. I speak Spanish pretty well. I sound like a giddy. You know, I've lost a lot of the accent. <laughs> so they, the police saw something was awkward, and so they pulled me over and questioned me for 35 minutes. They finally let me go, and I came across a second checkpoint, and I said, I'm, gonna, I'm smarter this time. And I put up my U.S. passport, but still speaking in Spanish. And when mm. I speak Castilian – they thought something's not right here. Why, why? So they pulled me over again another 35 minutes. And just an hour before getting to Madrid, my third checkpoint, and at that point, all I did was bring up my U.S. passport, and I said, Aeropuerto, por favor. And they waved <laughs> me right through. They waved no me right way. through. Really? Yeah. And I imagine, yeah, it must have been pretty stressful because you, you had a flight to catch, basically, and you were quite a, a, well, a long way from Madrid down in Jaén. Down in I guess you, you – <laughs> You needed to yeah. get back and get your flight and get out of there. Otherwise, you could That's have been great. stranded. Although maybe that would have been quite nice to be stranded in, in Jaén amidst the olive groves. <laughs> I agree. I wouldn't have minded. And I imagine in Jaén, I mean, there must be hundreds of different producers down there. There are hundreds and hundreds. You're exactly right. To produce a quarter of the world's olive oil, you've got to have a lot of producers. All the business is largely driven toward olive oil, whether it's um, the primary producers or you have a lot of companies that take secondary oil or the or the byproducts that come out of the process, right? like the olive pit, right, that comes out of the production process. There are companies that dedicate themselves to converting that into other energy sources. That's a fantastic idea because there must be a lot of pits. There's a lot of pits. <laughs> What makes Spanish olive oil different to olive oil from Greece or Italy or Turkey? Inside that, what are the different kind of varieties that we can find? I mean, there are great extra virgin olive oils all over the world, whether it's Turkey, Morocco, Greece and Italy. But 
you know, there's a reason why Spain produces half of the world's olive oil. It didn't just happen. The reason why is what I find beautiful. It's the geographical differences. It's the diverse climate in the geography in Spain that allow it to have such different olive aromas and tastes, which lead to different varieties. I and see. it's that combination and diversity in varieties that I think has made Spain such a superpower in olive oil. There are thousands of different olive varieties around the world, over 2,000, and there's 260 in Spain. You can probably concentrate the most popular ones, like 14 or so, but the main ones are Picual, is a Spanish olive variety that are that is just wonderful. I like Picual because it has a very strong taste, and it also has the highest level of these polyphenol antioxidants. So to me, it's the healthiest version of mm -hmm. olive varieties. And there are other varieties. Arbequina is another very popular one from Spain. That's from the Catalonia region. That's a bit softer in taste. But I like the strong, pungent extra virgin olive oil because when I add it to my salads, I want that flavor. It's interesting. And I guess in a way, a bit like wine and vineyards and geography, they talk about this idea of like terroir, like how the kind of the soil and the land and the climate all come together to, to in that specific area to create something that has a very unique flavor that you can only find in that particular area. That's exactly right, Paul. It is just like wine. And just like um, you wouldn't combine multiple wines from different areas because you would dilute that terroir. Mm. Also, olive oil, from my perspective, should come from a specific place. And so the reason I say that is extra virgin olive oil that I can find in my supermarkets usually almost always come from eight different countries blended together. And when you blend eight different countries together into one – that loses the terroir, that loses the geographical uniqueness of that grove. And so I always urge people to get olive oil that's from a single estate, a single grove. Even the shape of the land will change the taste of the olives. If it's slightly more inclined, the way it drains water is very different. The way the wind hits that hill is very different than just a flat area. So even subtle differences like that will affect the flavor of olives. In fact, you could have a single grove and if it's large enough to have different geographical variations, hills or the way the wind hits it, the olives will taste different from one area of the grove to another. Lucas, you very kindly sent me, even though you're in the US and I'm here in Madrid, you sent me a bottle of the extra virgin olive oil, which you have sourced and are importing to the US. And I got the bottle right here in front of me. We're going to do a little kata, a little tasting, a little olive oil tasting. I've got the bottle here and I've got a little glass. Shall we have a taste? Um, I'm really excited to see how this compares, basically, to the boring stuff that I've been used to. Let, let's do it. And I'm doing the same thing on my side with the oil. It's the same oil from the same grove. I'm going to pour some into my glass. Yeah, I'm going to pour some. So I'm just going to take the lid off. Hang on a second. So from yep. opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean, we are sipping the same olive oil from Cheyenne. Here we In go. unison. How cool is that? This is a grove called Cortijo 
Espiritu Santo. It's one of my favorite groves, and that's why that's the oil that I've chosen to import into the U.S. What I would recommend we do is you take a look at the color, see what you can describe as the color, and then we smell it and then taste it. And, and Paul, there is no right or wrong here. If you think it tastes <laughs> like hamburgers, it tastes like hamburgers. Not- I'm so <laughs> glad you said that. <laughs> that's right. I don't, know, I don't know if I've got the greatest palate in the world, I've just poured some into a little clear uh, shot glass, as uh, as you can see, because we're recording this on uh, Skype for the listeners. Sorry, you can't see this. I'm going to put a photo of it, though. It's got a lovely golden greeny yellow. It's kind of uh, it's a kind of darker and a slightly bit more of a greenier yellow than I'm probably maybe used to seeing, actually. That is the indication of being early harvest. Definitely, it's good that you're seeing it as green uh, as opposed to the yellow or gold that we typically see for the late harvest. Shall we smell it first? Should we Absolutely. do it like, like, like wine? Oh, wow. What, what do you smell? I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Now, I, don't, I hope this doesn't sound too crazy. It reminds me of the smell of freshly cut grass in the summer not completely but there's an element of that when you mow a lawn and it's freshly cut as for me it's one of my favorite smells it's very evocative it reminds me of england in the summer yes i agree unfortunately it's something i'm very familiar with i mow my own lawn and you're right it's very grassy Mm. and i actually smell tomato like vine tomato green tomato in fact it reminds me of uh, when i have pan con tomate in spain Mm. the pan con tomate it's a tomato uh, spread on bread with olive oil and salt it reminds me of that but many people that i speak Mm. to because we we give samples all the time paul say that the grassy smell is the most notable i think for me i would agree but now you've said that the more i smell it i really get my nose right into this glass I can see what you mean with the tomato vine kind of the, the tomato vine smell as well. That's for me. That's more a bit more background, but yeah, it's there. Mm-hmm. It smells heavenly. Okay, shall we uh, raise the glass and? Uh... Now this is pretty potent stuff, Paul. So don't do a shot like you would do a shot of whiskey or something. <laughs> Let's no, slow I, it down. <laughs> I'm gonna take a little bit, just a little, okay. a little tiny half sip. Let's okay, it. let's do it. Mm. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Um, For me, again, it's uh, that fresh, sweet cut grass smell. But now it's like times 10. Are you getting a peppery aftertaste by chance? I'm going to have another tiny little. So I'm getting this peppery aftertaste the back of my throat. It almost makes me want to cough. Yes, I'm getting out of the back of my tongue. It's it's kind of like a, yeah, peppery, you're right. It's it's more like the sensation of like a kind of a heat, a kind of warmth that's running through it. Rather than the flavor of pepper, it's like that warmth that you get from it, pepper. It is. Yeah, that's right. So mm. what, what we're tasting there is the high level. This is a Pequal olive variety, and it's a high level of the, what they call polyphenol antioxidants that we talked about earlier. Piquel, okay. Uh-huh. Piquel, and that's the the peppery taste. Um, they they sometimes call it a cough. In, in fact, in Spain they'll call it a one cough oil or a two cough oil, and the potency of wow. that polyphenol antioxidant is what gives that that peppery taste. So, in fact, uh-huh. I'm sometimes careful to not have too much when I sample this because I will sometimes cough from it. Yeah, when it hits the back of your tongue and then the back of your throat, it has definitely got that kind of slight piquancy, that little, as if it were almost slightly spicy. Yeah, slightly slight spicy. Subtle spiciness to it. Mm. That's right. And piquancy happens to have the, the a stronger flavor like that. So I, 
I love having this oil because it reminds me that I'm drinking something or consuming something healthy, you know, because of that peppery taste. And when I was in Cheyenne, Paul, it was sometimes embarrassing because we would go, you know, I'd be like in the mill, right? I'm not trying it from a bottle, be in the mill in front of a huge, you know, million gallon vat of oil. And the, the person, the chief operator would bring a glass out, like from the, turn a little spigot, you know, from the bottom of this huge uh-huh. container and he would get um, some of this green stuff it looked like kryptonite like it was so so green <laughs> and i would taste it and sometimes it was so strong because it's so fresh that i would mm. literally have a coughing attack and i just felt so weird especially in the whole covid area in october you know here i am coughing my head <laughs> off in this guy but it just speaks to the freshness of some of this oil that we can get so what we've just tasted is some of the freshest and some of the best olive oil in the world so that's just kind of cool to to think about i probably have never tasted in my life uh, such high quality fresh olive oil or olive juice really isn't it this is a world away from your average olive oils that you find on the supermarket shelves i have to say i'm really enjoying that pepperiness now it's really for me the more i take of it the more intense that sensation becomes that's great I, I think that's a, that's a great uh, experience and taste that you've you've had mm-hmm. but now that you've opened your bottle once air gets into it you do want to consume it within two months, I'd say. Paul, now that you've tasted that oil, just like me when I tasted this Supreme oil, I can't now go to restaurants and and find acceptable (laughs) these ranch and Thousand Island and this oil that they provide me. I just can't. I noticed actually that I was having less favorable foods because of that. So I would turn, I would not order the salad because I knew I was going to get these nasty offerings of dressings, and I'd go for the hamburger. So what I do now, I'm that guy that brings his own little bottle of olive oil to the restaurant. (laughs) And I kid you not, I'm not embarrassed to bring out this little bottle because I know I'm going to order that salad and enjoy it to the fullest when I bring my own stuff. Wonderful liquid gold on it is going to completely transform it and take it to another level. I think the first time I saw one of those little plastic bottles like that was actually on the Ave train. Uh, when I ordered a, a pan con tomate, of course, the breakfast of kings, and it came with the little bottle of oil to 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 pour on it. So I love them, and I guess you could reuse them. You could just keep filling them, refilling them. There. That's exactly what I do. I use the same bottle and just refill it. And, and yeah, you don't see that in the U.S. Unfortunately, at least it, not not yet. I mean, you see the little ketchup packets, right, or the butter <laughs> self serve, but it's going to yes. be a while before we see olive oil, especially you know this world class, really good olive oil. And what you're describing, these little self-serve things, when I go to Cheyenne, every restaurant you go to has these little self-serves, and they're self-serve bottles of the nearest grove. And so the the oil is actually an advertisement marketing for the the grove in the area, and because there are so many, all these little self-serve, like the quality of the oil coming out of these little bottles are just extraordinary when you're in Cheyenne. And the production process, lots of people will have this kind of romantic vision of these very old traditional mills and presses, old wooden mills and presses. These days, they're a lot more kind of industrial looking, I suppose. The first time I saw a a modern day olive oil press, it kind of shattered the illusion slightly for me because I thought, wow, it just looks very industrial. You're so romantico at heart. I'm a romantic at heart. Absolutely. Yeah. I I love what you're describing, these old wooden, I picture these wooden round structures pulled by mules that grow grind the olives. Exactly. That, it, it no longer happens that way. And in, in fact, when you look at any bottle in the US for extra virgin oil, it says cold pressed. Olive oil is not pressed anymore. 
that's just a marketing term cold pressed is a marketing term okay i'm glad you cleared that up because i've heard people say oh it's cold pressed it's got to be really good that's just marketing nonsense you're exactly (laughs) right cold pressed or first press there's no such thing as first press or second press it's it's all done very industrialized and you're you're right walking into a mill today is very different than seeing a mill 100 years ago but in essence there's three main parts to this whole production one is agriculture right the planting the manicure the pruning and the fertilizing. Second is the harvesting, the collecting of the olives from the trees. And there's a whole practice to that. Like I said before, good practices versus not so good practices. Mm-hmm. And the third is really the milling and the bottling. And that milling and bottling, that process has really evolved tremendously over the years. It involves the cleaning of the olives once it's there, then you're grinding the olives. The extraction and that extraction is not pressed anymore, as I mentioned. It's more a centrifuge. Then there's the storage and filtration and bottling. That's in essence at a very high level, but process from the grove to getting the oil to your table. One thing that I'm intrigued about on an industrial scale, how do they get the olives off the trees nowadays? It depends on the producer. The large producers that have a lot of trees, they can't do the most rudimentary by hand manual harvesting. There are too many trees, right? So so you're right. There's a whole variation from the small groves, like Grove Master Dave that we talked about earlier. (laughs) He he doesn't shake the tree. He actually does it by hand. He Uh doesn't even use mechanical combs. They have these like rakes or combs that are mechanical in nature that'll just shake the olive from the branch. He's, He's pure manual. The other extreme of that are these machines, these tractor looking like things, beasts Mm -hmm. that grab the trunk of the tree with these huge mechanical arms and they vibrate the tree. And that's how they shake the olives. The olives don't fall to the ground. They usually put some sort of netting or capture device to grab the olives. It's an awful thing to see, Paul, because these trees are so majestic. And to, to see these mechanical robots grab the tree like that, it seems like it's harming the trees. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's really harming it or not, but it's just an awful sight to see anyway. But that's the most yeah. mechanical means that I've seen. It sounds pretty brutal. I suppose it makes sense, first of all, to talk about how people should choose olive oil, what they should look for, and then talk about how we can use it. So give us a few tips and pointers. The first thing I should say is there is what I call cooking oil or olive oil that I use for cooking, and there's one that I use for finishing. And I use different selection criteria for both. So Mm. if I may, I'm going to talk about those kind of differently because the selection process is different for me. In essence, I'll start to say that to me, a cooking oil is not that important that it be super, super high quality. Yes, if I use the best quality olive oil for cooking, is my food going to taste better? Yes. Is it going to be healthier? Yes. But to many, including me, it's cost prohibitive to buy this really good quality oil and use that for cooking. And that's why I differentiate both. And I suspect maybe not you, Paul, but others are in a similar boat and they need to differentiate between those two. In essence, I'll start with the the finishing olive oil, work myself down. Now, there's a few criteria that I use. Note, Paul, that I'm a bit of a snob with olive oil. So my criteria (laughs) is going to lead us to a very good olive oil. I'd say with these six different things I'm going to give you, the more you have them in your oil, the better oil it's going to be. So again, for finishing olive oil. So when I say finishing, I mean I drizzle it over the food once it's cooked. So if I'm making vegetables, steamed vegetables, or fried eggs, 
or mm-hmm. or whatever it is, I finish it with this olive oil. Point number one, you make sure it's fresh from this season's harvest. It's kind of like pasta. Some people make their own pasta, and the people mm-hmm. that have made their own pasta, they raise their hands and they say, oh my goodness, fresh pasta just isn't the same as the regular pasta you buy. Same thing with olive oil. If it's fresh, and what I mean by fresh is from this season's harvest. Mm-hmm. If you buy olive oil that's from last year's harvest or older, it's just not going to be as fresh. So how you can tell is look at the harvest date. Okay, the harvest date on the bottle, if it includes it, mm-hmm. it you want it really within the last within 12 months. Mm-hmm. If that okay. oil has been harvested within 12 months, I would call that fresh. Second point is organic. Right? Again, I'm going for the healthiest quality olive oil that I can find, organic. Why not go organic? A natural biodiverse habitat, right, where birds can naturally take care of the pests. And they're not using insecticides or pesticides. Number three, we talked about this earlier, early harvest. To get the highest quality, the healthiest version of olive oil, make it early harvest. Four, single origin and single estate. I want consistent agricultural and harvesting practices because that leads to better outcomes, better quality olive oil. Mm -hmm. Single origin and estate is important to me. Fifth, small dark glass bottles. We talked about the size of the bottle is important. Yes. I recommend small bottles because I'm not going to – if you're not consuming that much olive oil in, in every day, don't get a huge bottle that's going to have a lot of oxygen and air in that bottle, and it's going to degrade the freshness. So get a small bottle if you can. Dark glass is important because light is one of the things that adversely affects olive oil, so a dark okay. bottle will protect it better. That's really useful to know. And so you should be storing your olive oil in a dark cupboard, not leaving it out on the kitchen worktop in in sunlight. Correct. Correct. And lastly, if you can make it an award winning olive oil, even better. And what I mean by that is there is an international competition in New York that takes place every year. It's called the NYIOOC, New York International Olive Oil Competition. Mm -hmm. The best of the best producers all over the world compete in that. La creme de la creme win those kind of awards. And when they win those awards, they like to advertise that on their bottles. So again, the olive oil that I select for finishing doesn't always have to have those six criteria, but the more that it has, the better quality olive oil it's going to be. Your checklist when buying. So that's for finishing. Now let's talk about cooking. I certainly recommend extra virgin olive oil only. Don't go for the other grades that we talked about, virgin olive oil or olive oil. I only use extra virgin olive oil. If it comes from multiple countries, I'm okay with it. I'm not going to get the extraordinary flavor of a single grove, but that's okay. In most supermarkets, you won't find olive oil that comes from one country anyway. Third thing is, again, the harvesting. I do still want an extra virgin olive oil that's harvested within the last 12 months. I don't want something very old. And lastly, again, don't get something that's too big of a bottle. People think, oh, I'm going to use it for cooking. Let me get a five-liter bottle, right? A two, three-gallon bottle. The truth is, unlike wine, olive oil will degrade over time. And so the more that bottle sits, once it's opened, the less quality, the less freshness it's going to have. So when mm-hmm. an, if it's an unopened bottle, that can last up to two years. But once you've opened a bottle of olive oil, whether it's for finishing or for cooking, that starts the decay process. And that's good to know. But yeah, I mean, totally guilty of that. I think I've got a five liter bottle of extra virgin olive oil in the cupboard, all from Spain. It's I did check that. It's not from multiple countries. But that's been open there. I think we bought it about a month ago, and that will probably last another month or two. So I'm going to take your advice. I'm going to try and stop doing that then. Yeah, we sometimes go for the deals, right? Sometimes the larger the bottle, the better the deal. 
but at the end of the day, if you can increase the quality of the olive oil a little bit by getting a smaller bottle, I think, I think it's worth it. Uh, mm. A lot of times too in the supermarkets, when you see a special deal for olive oil, that sometimes means it's last year's harvest. Right? They're trying to move the product, right? sell the product to make way for the new harvest. And so you'll see those usually discounted. So discounted extra virgin olive oil means usually that it's from the previous harvest. Can you give us any of your personal recommendations, any little recipes or any ways we should be using this beautiful extra virgin olive oil? Absolutely. And keep keep in mind that I'm from Spain. So I use this stuff constantly, right? I mean, I don't put it on my hair. I you know, I don't put it on my on my beard and stuff. But I just about put it on everything I eat short of ice cream and cereal. I put it just wow. about on everything. So I love steamed vegetables with it and I always use it for finishing. I use it for cooking as well, but I love it as a finisher. Me too. When I, fr- when I fry my eggs, at the end, I'll fully drizzle it. And mm. I sometimes fully drizzle my food or lightly drizzle my food, depending on what it is and depending on my attitude that day. So on fried eggs, I love to fully drizzle it. I love steamed broccoli and shard. Right? We grow shard in the back of our yard. My wife Delicious. and I have a little garden. So uh-huh. we harvest our own little vegetables, and I like to steam them, whether it's spinach or shard or kale. And I fully drizzle that. I put it on spaghetti, on pasta with tomato sauce. I'll finish it there. The weirdest thing I put it on that my kids make fun of me for <laughs> is pizza. Yeah, I've done that before, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will soak up that nasty, gross oil that it comes with when we order pizza, right? I don't know where what that oil is that they use, but I'll use a napkin or a paper towel to soak that up, and I'll replace that with a light drizzle of the good stuff. And Paul, it changes the taste of pizza (laughs) like you wouldn't believe. And that's what I find so cool about these oils is if I taste the oil by itself, it has one flavor. But when I put it on vegetables or grilled salmon or on pizza, it changes the taste of that food tremendously. Making me hungry. I've got a question for you because I know I've seen people do this. I've done this before and it'd be interesting to get your opinion on this. Infusing olive oil with other things. You know, I see some people that like infuse olive oil with chilies or garlic or herbs. But would that detract from the pure flavor of an olive oil? Paul, you're you're exactly right. I mean, I love the flavor of infused olive oil as well. Rosemary infused olive oil, like it's Mm. very special, but it's not really apropos for these world-class organic early harvest extra virgin olive oils because Mm -hmm. that in itself has its own flavor. And so to infuse that would really deteriorate the quality of the olive oil and take away the taste. So there's a place for infused olive oils, but to me, when I see... An infused olive oil that generally means it wasn't a, a world-class healthiest version of extra virgin olive oil. So mm-hmm. enjoy that infused olive oil, but know that it's not as healthy probably as something that was left more pristine. It's like getting a, a very expensive fine champagne and then mixing it with, I don't know, orange juice. Funny you say that because I love sangria, but I wouldn't take a Merlot or a Spanish really good quality Rioja. Mm-hmm. And throw fruit in it and throw orange juice exactly. in it to make sangria, right? So that's a, that's a good point. There, there's mm-hmm. one other thing I'd love to say about this and then filtered versus unfiltered olive oil, if I may. Around mm-hmm. the infused, there are a few ways to make infused olive oil. But one of the ways they make infused olive oil, especially in mass production, is they, they kind of cook 
the olive oil with the rosemary or the pepper or whatever they want to infuse it with. Mm. And I mentioned before, extra virgin olive oil is pure juice. There's no heat added to the process of making it. Well, as soon as you take extra virgin olive oil and you cook it to infuse it, it's not really, no longer really an extra virgin olive oil. You've cooked it, right? So all the all the health aspects, all the polyphenol antioxidants that, that had are starting to disappear from that. Yes. Now, there are multiple ways to make infused, but that's one way that I, I think large manufacturers make infused olive oil. So that's something to watch out for. And the other thing a lot of people always ask me about is the filtered versus unfiltered olive oil. It's difficult, at least in the U.S., to get unfiltered olive oil, and unfiltered means it has – like have you ever seen a bottle of olive oil that has like sediment at the bottom? Absolutely, yeah. It has like a kind of white, cloudy cloudy sediment, yeah. Correct, and you know, there's, there's nothing – more delicious than tasting unfiltered olive oil if it's fresh. Like I've tasted some when I was in Cheyenne, fresh from the from the silo. You know that it, these are bits of olive, right, that are really mixed into the olive oil that has not been filtered out, and so the taste is really interesting. However, that bit of material is organic material, right? It's bits of the olive itself. And so that oil won't last as long as filtered olive oil. So if you ever buy unfiltered olive oil, enjoy it, but enjoy it quickly. Let's talk a bit about your business that you've set up taking this product from Spain to the U.S. My wife and I, Heather and I, started this business just just last year. While olive oil has been in my family for, for over 20 years with our grove in, in Almeria, and I've been consuming olive oil for a very long time, we realized here in the U.S. you really have a hard time finding good quality olive oil. Uh, mm. What you find in the supermarket, just to me, isn't the healthiest version of extra virgin olive oil that I can find. So Heather and I decided that we would go to Spain and find producers that met a whole bunch of criteria. It's not just the, the taste of the oil, but as I mentioned before, their agricultural practices. Do they gather olives from different groves within their area or are they single estate, which to me is very important? Their mm. milling process, right? How many quality control checks do they have in the milling process? The way they harvest, it's amazing that there are good harvesting techniques and there are not so good harvesting techniques. And subtle differences in that can affect the quality of extra virgin olive oil. For example, if one harvests olives but lets them sit for more than 24 hours before they're brought to the mill and processed, that no longer is going to be a quality extra virgin olive oil. I noticed that some producers might let their olives sit for two days before they can collect them and bring them to the mill. And so those are the kind of things that we look at, we assess the grove. And of course, if I can find organic, that's even better because I'm looking to bring back to the U.S. the healthiest version, world-class version of extra virgin olive oil I can find. And so that's what we did starting last October. And we found a tremendous producer in Cheyenne, and we're now importing that oil and selling it to our customers here in the United States. Heather and I are very proud to be able to bring something so unique, so healthy, and so spectacular to the U.S. consumer. Taste is important and, and education as well. We, we lack a lot of uh, understanding of what olive oil is and extra virgin olive oil. And when I go through the supermarket aisle and I see what I read on the extra virgin olive oil labels, I'm just appalled at the kind of marketing that I see and the very swanky bottles and labels. But when I really 
dig deep past that and see that it's oil coming from eight different countries blended together, it really shows me the opportunity of, of us to be educated as U.S. consumers, but mm-hmm. the, the opportunity to find good olive oil is just pretty, pretty scarce. Is there some kind of um, like certification uh, when people are looking at bottles? Is there any kind of official kind of standardization that can help people recognize the grades and the quality so that they know what they're actually getting? There is no certification in the U.S., but there is a requirement for us to list the term extra virgin olive oil if it is that. Any challenges you faced importing uh, into the U.S.? I remember reading a few articles, I think last year, from some olive oil producers here complaining about Donald Trump and tariffs and this kind of thing and saying it was kind of pretty devastating for them. I don't know if that's still the case. Obviously, Trump is not there anymore. What you're describing are the are the current tariffs that we have as an as an American company importing into the U.S. Uh, you're correct that actually during the last administration, they have some retaliatory tariffs that were imposed for olive oil bottles that are less than, I think it's 20 liters, less than 20 liters. And that's a 25% tariff. So what that means is that if I, just to use numbers easily, if if I Mm. import $1,000 worth of olive oil, right? So if I pay $1,000 worth of olive oil to a grove in Spain, when I import that into the US, I'm going to pay an extra $250 to import that. Wow, that's, that's, okay. that's, that's aside from the cost of importing, right? The cost of a, a, we like to ship it by jet. So that's aside from the cost of the importing company or the transportation company, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those costs are, are costs that really hurt our consumers at the end of the day, you For know, sure, and make olive oil more expensive. Mm. I don't know how quickly those are going to go away with this new administration. I'm trying to keep abreast of it, of course, because it's something mm. that impacts us quite a bit. But importing olive oil for small producers is just not it's just not super easy for, for any of them to do. That's mm. why I think it's when you go walk through a supermarket aisle, you see large producers, but you don't see a lot of small ones. Aside from the tariff, right? you have to have a whole bunch of FDA regulations even overseas. So the U.S. FDA is a governmental agency here. Mm-hmm. They are protecting the U.S. consumer. And to do that, they're making sure that the grove or the producer overseas meets specifications. Talking about the cost of olive oil, I mean, you may not have an answer to this. I don't know. I'm intrigued. What has been the most expensive bottle of olive oil you've ever seen? I'm just curious. Are there some super, super expensive olive oils available? The most I've seen is probably around the $50 mark for a uh, 250 milliliter. So for those U.S. listeners, that's about Mm. just over a cup for $50, which is a lot for the U.S. consumer, right? $50. At the end of the day, Paul, I think it's all about how this oil tastes to us, right? I could tell you six different criteria of how to select really good olive oil. But if this olive oil that costs a dollar for you tastes just as good to you as the $50 bottle, by all means, go for that if health is not a concern or an aspect you're looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, It's really important that people understand that aside from those criteria that I mentioned, they ultimately have to taste it. And if it meets your palate, that's the oil to choose. Lucas, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real education on Spain's liquid gold. I appreciate that, Paul. And, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. I love your podcast. And I'm I'm so glad I finally got to talk to you because, you know, you've, you've got a special uh, British accent, of course, Paul. And so we in the U.S. <laughs> love to hear you talk. We love some of the episodes you have. My favorite one that I've heard from you is the do's and don'ts 
of Spain. I was you, you had me laughing as well in that. Controversial. <laughs> Somewhat controversial, but I think it's great that you talk about these topics. So thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for inviting me on your program. So that was Lucas Soler. And if any of you listeners who are based in the United States would also like to taste this magnificent extra virgin olive oil that Lucas has sourced from Hayen, uh, head over to his website, which is oliveoilgrove.com. You can also find Olive Oil Grove on Instagram. The handle is at oliveoilgrove. And Lucas is also on Facebook. And the handle there is also oliveoilgrove grove okay well what a packed episode don't forget if you do enjoy the podcast do consider signing up to become a patron of the show and you can do that at patreon.com forward slash when in spain and if you're not in a position to do that one thing which is really helpful is to leave a little review of the podcast if you can on the platform where you listen and also don't forget to spread the word if you know someone who's really interested in spain or is planning a visit here in the future or is thinking of coming to live or work or retire right here in Spain tell them about the show we are now 94 or 95 episodes so there's a huge back catalogue of episodes to binge on to learn more about this fantastic country okay I'll leave it there thank you for joining me and until the next episode hasta luego